0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to React Roundup. I'm Justin. I'm going to be your host today. Our guest panelists are Thomas. Hello. And Dave. Hey, everybody. Got it right. (laughs) Today we're having, it's just a panelist episode, so there's no no guest. We're just kind of going to be talking about whatever strikes our fancy. Hey, folks,
1: I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a backend. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called Eleventy.js and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat Serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a back end and it'll do some of the work for you. I, I just I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back end without having to actually program the back end, then give them a try. Go check them out at netlify.com.
0: And to start off with, I've proposed the topic of image lazy loading in React. So image-lazy loading is the kind of notion where images that are below the fold, meaning they're rendered outside of your browser view when you initially load a page, um, are deferred, so they're loaded later, so that your page loads faster when you hit it. Um, And then as you scroll down on the page and things get close, then you load them in. It's a a very, like, commonly suggested performance optimization. Uh, So if you use... Lighthouse and Chrome developer tools, and you like audit your site, it will generally say, hey, you should defer all of these off screen images, um, and lead you to articles that give you like these JavaScript snippets to kind of do this thing. But a lot of times they don't work well in the React world, necessarily. So you have to do like a little bit of mental mapping there. So yeah, we'll start off with that. So Thomas, have you had, or Dave, have y'all had any like experience with like these sorts of optimizations? Yeah, I
2: recently did a bunch of Gatsby stuff, and they handle a lot of this stuff out of the box with Gatsby Image, where it automatically handles at compile time or build time uh, actually resizing all the images to various dimensions that you want to use, as well as building out the, the image tags with all the latest, greatest uh, stuff, like there's They've added all this stuff to the HTML standard that I wasn't paying attention when <laughs> when they added it. I was off doing React Native stuff, but now there's like a source set and sizes and all this stuff to let the browser automatically like pick the rec, the right image to show you. And then Gatsby will do things like automatically put in like the the base sixty four super low res version of the image like into the HTML, so you get a really nice you know progressive. Loading experience, very cool stuff.
0: Yeah, I think images in general are actually a really hard topic because you have this whole notion of like what image, what size of the image should I load in on like different screen sizes, and a lot of people don't handle that. They just like, what is my biggest kind of breakpoint? I guess if I'm doing responsive, or just like, what is the the widest uh, size of this image I support, and we'll just load that in eagerly, kind of on whatever device you're on. So there is this picture elements that I'm sure Gatsby uses. So picture is a, is a new-ish HTML element, um, and inside of picture, you can have, like, two sort of other tags. You can have source or multiple sources, um, and these, like, define the types of images you would load for different <coughs> points, so you can have, like, a source set, so you like, I want to load this, like, reference image small on, like, min-width, you know, 325 or whatever and it just like lets you like specify multiple images for different breakpoints and then it has at the very end an image tag which is treated as the fallback for browsers that don't support it and there's a common abstraction for like to have a react component that like wraps up that whole picture element thing so you're just like I want this image and like supporting these other breakpoints and stuff i'm sure there's a good library out there for that <laughs> Not that I've seen one. I've like hand rolled a lot of these things recently and they're kind of challenging. Yeah, it seems like there's kind of a spectrum
3: of, I don't know, how to, how to do image lazy loading, right? Like you could just do the image by itself. You could do like, it just doesn't load until it scrolls into view. You can do the fancy like progressive thing where you load. If there's a the low res version or a blurry version, or I think I've seen even some sites using an SVG maybe. Like yeah. A, a quick flash of like an outline and then it becomes an image, which is an interesting, interesting thing. And I guess a lot of that stuff is like build time concern stuff. Right? Like you, you want to do that at compile time. Yep. And like another aspect to the whole size thing is, is like pixel density, right? Like on iPhones or whatever, like there's 2x and 3x. And I don't even know if there's, is, is there 4x now? I don't know. But,
2: Android even has um, 1.5x. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? And 0.75x. Oh,
0: my. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's complicated. I mean, it seems like this is such an easy thing, because, like, image tag is, like, one of the first things you sort of, like, learn when you're doing, you know, just, like, basic web development, but it's a really nuanced topic. So part of the experience of image lazy loading, there's like two like main areas. So there's like above the fold optimizations. So it's going to be something in view. And a lot of times like sites have like really big banner images. So think medium, right? Huge banner image. going to take a really long time to download. How can we optimize this thing? So Dave, you're talking about like loading in a smaller version of image. Uh, A lot of times people like load in like a really, really small version of the image and just like blow it up. And like yeah. add like a CSS like blur effect on it or something yeah. so it look, doesn't look like crazy terrible and then just like as your other images loads in it just like fades over it or something. Sort of an
3: approximation <laughs> of like
0: the frame yeah, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. You see sites like uh like Pinterest uh that take um color approximations of the end int- uh, of the image and as the image is loading in, they just have a, the placeholder container that's like the appropriate color. And then, like uh, the image, like kind of pops in over that. So it feels, it feels like something is happening. You know, it feels like there's there's an image there. And it's not just like this like white screen, and then like some image pops in. It's like ah, oh. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, I think Facebook is doing a lot of cool stuff like that too, to really optimize the the instant, you know, sub millisecond experience. Like as you're scrolling through at breakneck speed.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, one of the things that we do for images that are below the fold, we have this little, like, pulse animation. And I think Facebook does this for, like, a lot of their placeholder content. So, we have, like, a it's a gray box, but it kind of, like, pulses in and out. So, it feels like something is happening. And then, like, the image loads in. It's that 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 perception of progress or the illusion of progress that kind of makes makes it feel like things are faster than they really are. Yeah. Um,
2: it's kind of like the same principle of like when you have a, uh, a disabled or a button, you still have the button there. It's just dimmed out and you can't press it. So you kind of get that subtle indication of this is what's supposed to be there. But for some reason it's not quite ready yet. So instead of just having the generic spinner, I remember like this was designed like back in 2013 at Facebook, the, the guys who are or guys, gals, everybody that was uh working on that stuff th- there were a, a million different options and that's the thing that tested best with real people in reality just feels more like something real is happening versus something inauthentic i guess
3: yeah that that thing where, where it's sort of like while you're loading a list it'll look like you have a list of gray boxes or whatever and yeah. so the actual list shows up yeah yeah that that's it's a, it's a nice
0: I, there's a word for that i don't know that is but yep I think it's an important topic generally. Um, So one of the things that I like, I I like talking about performance and thinking about it a lot. And and one of the things about performance is really, it's not just a development time concern. It's also very much a design concern because, you know, you you design an experience and you have like many, many large images in that experience. You have to accept the trade-off that this is going to be a slower experience. And when you're building for the web, the incremental loading nature of like all these resources is something that you should absolutely be thinking about. So discussing with your design team is like, well, what is the loading experience of this interaction going to be is like really kind of pivotal. Um, And I think some teams like often like miss that. They think about like, what is the, what is the end experience that we're going for? And then they build for that. And then it's like, oh, this like feels really bad on a slow connection. (laughs) Yeah, that's yeah. one
2: of those things that you kind of learn the hard way the first couple times, but then over the years, you kind of learn to ask more questions up front because sometimes designers will have a certain assumption of how you're going to to implement it, or they, they have a certain vision that they're just, you know, assuming that you see eye to eye on,
0: with them. Yep, yep. Assumptions are uh, a challenge that... Uh, makes over communication almost really necessary especially between like different disciplines like uh, design and engineering and you know other disciplines in your business i definitely advocate for a strong and very close working relationship with design because it save you a lot of pain and heartache later
3: yeah definitely yeah it's interesting like kind of both disciplines or i guess every discipline probably has this where there's like the stuff that they think is just assumed that is so basic to them that they just assume everyone else will already consider this. And it's like maybe for the designer, that's like, oh, of course you'll add a loading state. I don't even have to tell you what that is. And the <laughs> developer, it's some sort of performance thing where it's like, of course you don't want to render 10,000 items on the screen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so bridging back to the conversation of the image lazy loading, so... The actual implementation of, like, below-the-fold image lazy loading is, is a unique challenge. And I, and I find that it's kind of hard in the React world especially. So there's been, there's been like, two kind of solutions to this. Like, the, the old-school approach was you listen on scroll. Like, you listen for scroll events, and when an image gets either close to being in view or in view then you like actually add a, a source attribute to it. Like you like leave that out to begin with and then you add the source attribute later. Um, and then that'll trigger the the download and like the image will pull in. The newer recommendation recently is using intersection observers. Have y'all used those yet much? I think I've played with it like
3: once or so. Is, is this the sort of thing where you can set you can set up an intersection observer on an element and it'll tell you when that element scrolls into view basically without having to do scroll handling.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of gives you, it tells you like if, if the the image is in view and also it can tell you like what ratio of the image is in view. So if you wanted like, Oh, I want to do something when this thing is fully in view or only like partially in view or something, but, but uh, much better performance than uh, than scroll handlers for sure. There's also a ton of other really interesting uh, observers. So there's a resize observer. So you can actually like put this thing on an element, and as that element's width changes, you can like get events like based on that change. So like the old school way of like continually like pulling the event or like or pulling the element and just trying to measure its width and causing like interesting reflows and stuff. Like, you, you don't have to do that. Um and there's a performance observer which does other stuff I don't I don't remember off the top of my head what it does but
2: yeah the the resize observer is super super useful back in 2010 or something uh, I was working with a team there was a guy that found a, a brilliant use for it because uh the on resize observer has historically worked on any element in internet explorer <laughs> and You could use it to polyfill certain behaviors that were just impossible in like IE6 quirks mode. (laughs) They were using it to do all kinds of really brilliant like layout techniques, which are now completely irrelevant because we have, you know, modern technology. There are all kinds of of fun ways to abuse the, (laughs) the intended use of all this basic stuff.
0: Yeah, they're really useful. I think that's one of my favorite things about the web. And, and like also one of like the scariest things is like <laughs> <laughs> tends to be a lot of hacks a lot of times. But yeah. these tools are like these really base primitives that give you a lot of power to do a lot of really interesting things. Uh, yeah, one really cool thing that I used the,
2: um, the Intersection Observer for recently is to know when somebody scrolled all the way to the top. Because, you know, like the pattern where the the bar at the top is like sticky if you've scrolled down, but at the top, it's like just flows regular style. I use the intersection observer to just see when they were close enough to the top and just toggle the CSS or a class name somewhere that changed it from position fixed to position absolute and, you know, boom, done.
0: That's really awesome. I haven't used it as much as I would like, but uh, lazy loading has been like the primary use case for it. For me, anyway. Uh, But there's a lot of like really interesting uses, I think, that can come out of it. Especially for, like, I wonder if it can like start replacing things like tracking pixels, you know, like not having to, well, if you had those like natively on platform, not having to use like things like that as much. Um, yeah. or at least making those more performant where you're not, like, again, scrolling. Yeah. Those. Being able to
2: to fire off a tracking pixel after somebody scrolls to a certain position on screen would be very, very useful to, to code with less code.
0: <laughs> yeah. A lot of times when we're thinking about site usage and trying to measure that, sometimes it's like it can be hard to tell, like, you know, is the user actually, so yeah, this thing came into screen, but is the user actually like, are they probably looking at this thing or is it just like kind of in screen, you know? So maybe using the ratio functionality of an intersection observer could say like, yeah, this thing came in screen, but it's like, it was barely on screen. So it's like, they're probably not actually actively engaging with this module or whatever. Yeah, Th- that sort of thing, like measuring
2: how people are actually using stuff in reality is so critical for the success of, of whatever you're trying to do, because, you know, you can ask somebody if they care about a certain thing, but nothing beats just seeing if they actually buy the thing, use the thing, look at the thing, etc.
0: Yeah, I've had a lot of uh, conversations with product teams in the past where it's like, hey, you know, we want to, we want to go through this big effort and add this like, kind of complex module, but we want to add it to like the bottom of the page. Um, I'm like, Okay, great. Like how many users actually get to the bottom of the page? <laughs> That's always an interesting question. Like, like you build all these things with the idea that, you know, I'll build it and like people will use it, but like, eh, is that really the case? Like, right. And then you get into get issues
2: it? of intent of like, if they're all the way to the bottom of the page, what are they doing there? They're probably looking for something that they didn't find. Is it this random giant heavy thing that I want to put there? Or are they looking for the footer? Cause they want like the, the terms of service page or something.
0: Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing on the image lazy loading. Um, So it was announced by the Chrome team that Chrome 75 will have native image lazy loading. So if you (laughs) don't want to go through this process of trying to learn all the complexities around how to do image lazy loading, hopefully it'll be a native thing. So I uh, I added a, a tweet to the... To the chat, which we'll have in the show notes later. Um, definitely check that out because it's a very succinct example, and it also shows like the picture element that we were talking about earlier. So. Okay,
2: that's pretty cool. So it looks like they they added a loading attribute to the image tag, which lets you set properties like late or values of like lazy or eager. I'm assuming if it's eager, that means it'll load it first.
0: So yeah, there's there's three states. There's auto, eager, and lazy. Eager is just like the normal image loading behavior that we have today. It's just like you have an image tag with a source, so it like tries to download it right away. It might do something with the priority of it. I'm not hundred percent sure. But you know, just from their documentation, it sounds like it's the same as like not having the loading attribute at all. Hmm. Interesting. And I think the reason why they have that is because the browser is going to default to an auto state. So it's going to choose whether or not an image should be lazy loaded. Now, I'll be really curious to see how this plays out. See if any sites like suddenly. (laughs) Yeah, it should be
3: a fun bug to track down. (laughs) Why is my
0: image loading only sometimes?
2: All the data trackings, people have got to be absolutely freaking out. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Your tracking pixels now really don't fire. <laughs> oh boy. Surprise. The other kind of cool thing about this is it works on iframes too. Um, Ooh. So you can actually lazy load iframes. So this has implications for like ads and stuff, maybe. Ah. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder
3: how they define this. So the tweet says lazy load an off screen image when a user scroll near it. And I wonder how they define near. I know there's some other browser API I think I used a while back where, like, you could it would tell you if something scrolled into view, and but like into view was 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 basically like one pixel into view, and like there was no way to tell like this thing is fully in view or whatever. Um, and I guess intersection observer would probably help with that now. But I wonder if the if the default will be if it'll be tunable or if it'll actually matter or not. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um... So we actually use, for our lazy loading, because it's a complex implementation, we use a library for it. Um, it's React Lazy Load Image Component, which is a mouthful. It does what it says. It's <laughs> it's a loads. React component for image lazy loading. So, you know, very explicit. But um, it, it, like, lets you configure that, like, wait, we have 100 pixels. So if, like, you're getting 100 pixels away from the image, then it'll, like, start downloading it. Because that, that experience of, like, scrolling things through things uh, can be slow.
3: Yeah, I can imagine maybe based on connection speed, you might want to load, start loading sooner or something yep. like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: There's, there's a lot of correlation between connection speed and uh, screen size. So you can pretty much guess that if they have a 1x resolution and their screen size is pretty low, that means they're probably on a really crappy Android device and you should probably give them a break and don't give them a 4K image.
0: Yeah. Background, yeah. <laughs> but they still need my one megabyte JavaScript payload. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Actually, dealing with, with JavaScript payloads is, is also another challenge. Um, and I, I find that even if you have a really in-tune, really like well-educated on performance issues, that it can still be hard to like ship a really small bundle. Especially... Yeah in the React ecosystem where, like, things just aren't skinny. Like, you know, it is what it is. You get React and a router and your state layer, and, like, that starts adding up pretty quickly, and you don't have, like, a whole lot of, like, room after that to, like, really.
2: Yeah, there are some cool techniques for, like, doing, um, like, async loading and um, async imports or whatever it's called, all that kind of stuff to do, like, multiple bundles and stuff. But I've been doing React Native for so long that I haven't learned that skill at all. I feel like I'm so far behind. Oh, man.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think Create React App supports that stuff out of the box or has for a little while where you can, you can, like, call import as a function and it'll basically resolve with a promise that you can, it's like when your import is done.
2: That's cool.
3: I think it will split those things up into bundles and only load them, like, only download them once, like, that thing comes in, like, once that component renders. Yep. Um, I'd be wrong about that, but could
0: yeah. you combine that with like suspense? That is Probably. I think that's really the sort of intent. Uh import. Yeah.
2: <laughs> interesting. I should play around with suspense more.
0: Yeah, bundle splitting is uh or code splitting is a is a really interesting and sometimes difficult topic. It can be a little bit challenging. But like even getting like deeper than that, like sometimes just knowing what dependencies you ship is or Knowing if you have duplicate dependencies that Ooh, you're shipping yeah. is is a huge thing, right? So we did analysis on our bundle and like at one point we were shipping three versions of Moment JS like Uh-oh. completely Uh-oh. unintentionally because oh, wow. it was a transient kind of oh. flowdown. And we were under the assumption that Webpack would just like take care of that, but okay. it doesn't. So you have to like be able to do some analysis to figure out like what you're actually shipping. And if you haven't looked at it, especially if you're using Webpack, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people are, there is a awesome book on Webpack. It's the Survive JS book on Webpack, um, <laughs> and it's it's literally it's almost the Webpack Bible. Like it's it's amazing. I got to check this. Um, it's it's one of my go to resources. But they have this performance section um, where they talk about tools that you can use to like monitor your your Webpack bundles. Um, And one of those is, let me see if I can find the link. Um, One of those is like a bundle analyzer. So it gives you like this really interesting graphic (laughs) of like all these breakdowns of like, this is just a bunch of cubes, which like represent like your bundle. So like show here's your main bundle and here's all the dependencies inside of that. And you can kind of dig into it and it'll show you at a high level, like, like, Oh, like, so if you use moment time zone like, by default, includes this latest .json file that's, like, huge. It'll be, like, the biggest thing in your whole bundle, and you're like, oh, what is this? <laughs> Easy, yeah, that, quick wins for some of those that's things. That's
3: awesome. The Webpack Bundle Analyzer or some yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's it. Yeah. Um, interesting. So so while you're mentioning Moment.js, I saw referenced recently this, uh, I guess that's a GitHub repo, actually, that's, like, that says you don't need moment js or you may not need moment js and it's got a bunch of um techniques for stuff you can do without moment so maybe yeah. maybe you can avoid it sometimes on a past project we ran into a similar problem with um i think it was like a password strength checker library hmm. cxcvbn there's just like all the keys along the bottom of the keyboard but yeah it had like some big like you bad passwords database or something. And so like looking at our bundle size, like why is the bundle five megs now? <laughs> and it was just like, oh, this library imports this huge thing. Like maybe we should only load that when you're looking at this particular page or cut it down or something. Yeah, yeah that bundle analyzer thing is handy.
2: It's common that a lot of times that teams, there's just nobody's job or role or responsibility to check on this stuff. and I mean, just to, to watch the performance over time or the the bundle sizes over time. It's like I loved adding this stuff to the, the CI C D kind of world. So you just automatically get a graph like emailed to you once a month. Oh right. There's performance. I forgot about checking that. It's like everybody knows now. Like, oh, we regressed by five megabytes in the last week. Dang.
3: Yeah, that's that's an awesome thing to to automate and put into CI. I wonder if like seems like maybe on small teams, especially like it just seems like that. That's, that's something we'll deal with later, right? Like, ship it first and then, and then go yeah. back and fix performance. But do you know if there are any good um, libraries or kind of existing stuff that you could fold into a build to do that for you?
0: I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, are, there, there are a lot of really good tools out there. Um, the one in, off the top of my head that I would like really recommend, like especially smaller teams that are looking into just like, I want some insight. Um, there's a tool called Calibre and it's just a, a performance testing service. So you can just like program in some URLs and it'll do a synthetic test. And, you know, well, it'll tell you things like, oh, here's, here's your JavaScript payload size. Here's your, you know, like here's your time to first byte. Here's your first render, you know, all this. It gives you like a really intense like analysis, but it like, it, it pops out some really good information. So it's, um, it's definitely a, a great tool. Um and it's caliber spelled the British way, not the not the American way. Calibre? Calibre. Oh, it's also like that ebook app. A, a, yes, it's it's not that. <laughs> yeah, caliber app. That's it. So it's it's a great tool. Um there's a lot of really good testing tools out there. So there's like uh Speed Curve has a similar sort of thing, but the pricing model is like completely different. So if you're a small team and you kind of just want to get into it, um this is a good tool. But you know, there are a lot of like really good. Webpack plugins out there, so we're talking about Bundle Analyzer, which is like really good. The wonderful, formidable team has this uh, Webpack bundle called Inspect Pack, so you can hook this into your Webpack build, and it'll tell you if you have like duplicates, and it'll probably also scare you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a thing. I think there's, there's definitely more opportunity in the market for like tools that really simply hook into your Webpack builds and like give you some more actionable, insightful information. Yeah. There's stuff out there for sure, but like...
1: This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
2: One thing I'm getting really excited about, and like I've talked about this before, is um, designers tend to be willing to pay money for good tooling and engineers historically have been really cheap for some reason. All of our tools we expect are free. But finally, people are, are starting to come out with like things like Caliber App, where that's totally targeting developers, but they're actually making money on it. Which, if there's a marketplace for really good dev tools and, and things like that, we might actually get better tools because somebody can make money building them.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems like the stuff that's that's related to build process is maybe is maybe breaking out of that shell a little bit. Where we've got yeah, like this Caliber thing, we've got um, CI/CD tools. I think um, what's the what's the end-to-end testing framework Cypress, right? Cypress. So like, I think the the library is free, but they have a service. That model will kind of will sort of expand and. Yeah, it does seem like if people will, people are more motivated to make good tools, if you will pay them for the tools.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, totally. If you're in an organization where you're having to kind of fight for these sorts of things, it's always at the end of the day about how much is it going to cost me to build something like this versus how much is it going to cost me to pay for a tool. And the vast majority of times, these tools are so much cheaper than the cost of like building your own thing. Um, At the end of the day, you're in in a business to do a specific thing. So like, try to focus on that thing and then pay for the tools to do the things that are not related to the thing that you need to be doing.
3: Yeah, that is totally That's another thing that I think people maybe don't think about, especially earlier in their careers that like people are expensive. (laughs) You know, if you you develop, put a bunch of developers on making some internal tool and you could be buying it, it's tens of thousands of dollars potentially that, you know. You didn't need to spend, maybe.
0: Yeah. Unless you are in the unless you're in the space where you build tools and then you market them and sell them to like recoup that investment. (laughs) Or you're just like very much like, I want to invest in the community, (laughs) then like really be mindful (laughs) of, you know, your expenditure from that perspective. I, I think it's great that people like roll their own solutions sometimes because like it's a great learning experience. It can be super valuable. But at the same time, it's like make those decisions mindfully. Don't just do them. Yeah. You know, yeah. Cost is like the, the costs
2: are what you see is the tip of the iceberg. Cause there's the long-term maintenance costs. There's the, you know, if they learn this weird proprietary thing and then leave, can you hire anybody else that wants to go and work on your weird thing?
0: Yep. For sure. I'm really <laughs> excited about things that give you the ability to have these kind of really sort of complex like interactions and automations but like lower that barrier, so you're doing less custom stuff. So GitHub Actions is something that I'm super excited about. I need to get and, it. Yeah, I can't tell you how much time I have spent just writing these like really custom workflows to you know do kind of like hard things, um, but like they're necessary for our team to like not have to have human attention on something like having the appropriate labels on issues. Or, you know, like, updating something at the right time, like, marking something as stale. There are, like, GitHub Marketplace apps that do that, but, like, actions are going to, like, really lower that barrier of entry, so you can have, like, custom sort of integrations without having to have, like, a lot of really hard, bespoke, you know, codes you have to support. I've
2: been starting to get into stuff like that with Alexa. Like, no, I'm not talking to you. Shut up, Alexa. I, like, set up routines to, like, bug me about stuff throughout the day and, like, I even have, um, I've got the, the Google audio thing and then the Alexa thing set up to talk to each other because I can't program them all to do everything that I want. So one will just say Alexa and the other one will say, hey, Google. And now they're both listening to me. Sorry, I can't help with that yet. <laughs> and um, nice. so you can do like, it's like a Bash in real life. Oh, man.
3: <laughs> it's like. Pitting the things against each other, to <laughs>
0: script up your tasks. I guess <laughs>
2: by their power combined,
3: I
0: can do <laughs> <operate> everything. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Like that's the part of the market that gets me excited. It's like give power to teams to do things that are custom to their team, but not to have to invest a ton of effort to make it happen. Like th- those things excite me because, like, it's really about like. Lowering the amount of work a team has to do to like use its workflow, you know, like whatever you can do to like move those barriers. Cause then at the end of the day, people get to focus more on like the thing that they're paid to do, right? <laughs> right. Build a really freaking good product and don't worry about like all this other stuff. It's just the other stuff is important. So <laughs> we have to pay for it or build it, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. The, the build versus buy thing is, is it, it's, um, yeah, I think it also kind of comes into like library decisions, right? Where if you have, if you have to make a make a table or some sort of component, where you're like, oh, someone will have already made this thing, and then you go and find one, and it, it turns out it does like ninety percent of what you want. Mm-hmm. But shoehorning in the last ten percent is going to take you three months. You know, it's that kind of thing where maybe it would have been faster to build it yourself, but I don't know. So there's there's also, I guess, maybe that you know the aspect of like how how well built are the tools to to be expandable versus like hard-coded for this one use case. Yep.
0: yeah, absolutely.
2: When I first started at uh, Facebook, I, I felt like there was a very strong not invented here bias of like they would only use stuff that was like built in-house. And I mean, this was back in 2012, way before React, way before any of this stuff. And when I started talking to people about it, they were like, well, we just have different problems from uh, from other people. And, you know, when I started thinking about it and really looking at the data, I'm like, they really did have different problems. So, you know, it's good to, to be able to take things off the shelf and use them. And it's good to build your own custom stuff. But you just, you have to really know exactly what you want and why to do it one way versus the other. And make sure that you communicate that to the team. Because if not everybody's on board, you're going to have like, disunity which can be bad
0: <laughs> yeah for sure i think being like really clear and transparent about your needs is is super important for a business also i, I really wonder like businesses at that scale how they save themselves from wasting tons and tons of money just like building things that they don't need um because you know like Facebook's a great example. Google has a whole SETI team. So like these people like do internal like infrastructure stuff. That's like their sole job in life is like to build internal infrastructure, which, you know, Google and Facebook obviously are at a scale that most company, well, not many companies are, right? So they do have definitely unique problems, but every business is a little bit different and every business is going to have a little bit of their own problems. So it's like figuring out like that, that combo of like what is worth spending time on. And I think sometimes there's like a sacrifice that needs to be made. It's like, yeah, sure, this tool doesn't exactly fit our problem exactly the way we need, but maybe it's good enough. Yeah, and as
2: engineers, there's a lot of of potential for us to be, you know, there's like the the 10x engineer of, you know, super powered. There's also like the negative 10x engineer that causes problems down the road that you just can't imagine in the short run. Of like, I've seen that happen where just somebody will just like, ah, this is easy, I'll just slap something together, it'll be fine, instead of, Picking the right library, and then they move on, and then and then you're stuck with this random thing. And there's no documentation. There's no explanation. Like, how did this thing get in here?
0: And then, ugh. <laughs> yep. Don't make decisions in a vacuum, people. <laughs> yeah, but it's tempting. It is. It is. It's always Sometimes. fun to build things and never have an idea of actually how hard it's going to be. <laughs> it's always yeah. you always see the yeah. little tip of the iceberg. You're like, oh, that's, look how small that is. It's fine. Possibly. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's so fun to imagine that one slice, you're like, Oh yeah, the UI will work like look like this and it's gonna work great, and then you totally forget about the rest of it.
0: <laughs> Oops. I I'm always really surprised. I think I think I'm in that stage in my career where I've like I've learned a lot, and now I'm really starting to appreciate the complexity of all the things that we build. And now, just building anything just scares the hell out of me because it's like, holy crap, this is really complicated. That
2: smells like wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so people are like, you know, hey, you just like want to like whip this website together, and I'm like. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> let me tell you what whipping this website together entails. Here are the <laughs> things you haven't thought about. <laughs> Goes down a big, long list. Juan, let me learn you something. Yeah. How do we get anything done? <laughs> what does
2: done even mean? <laughs> what does done even mean?
3: Yeah, nothing's ever truly done, is it? software just kind of keeps morphing. That's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of conversation to have around, like, what is the definition of done for some things? I can't tell you how many teams I've been on that have had a meeting around that exact thing. What is the definition of done? (laughs) They're like, okay, let's figure this out. has
2: been a big deal in my head lately is, like, I've always been so focused on, you know, getting things done, moving really quickly. Sometimes it's it's easy to lose sight of the larger goals, but I, I don't remember where I heard it, but I've heard a lot of, like, define failure... And then don't do that. <laughs> if you can define success and define failure and just like stay in kind of towards the, you know, the success side of that, that is good.
3: Seems like a good way to look at it. Yeah. Failure. Like what's, what's the opposite of done? And then like, don't do that.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's like when, you, when you're trying to learn how to be successful in life, you study a bunch of really successful people of like, you should also success, study some, fail, <laughs> some huge failures. Like, what did they do that I'm doing? Maybe I can do less of that.
0: I've had some conversations with like previous managers um, where I'm always kind of obsessed with this idea of just like being better, being more effective. And, you know, sometimes to a fault. And there's been like, I had a really good uh, manager previous in my career and he kind of sat me down and he was like, you know, focusing on improvement is great but you're also really good at th- these certain things. It's like, if you focused more on these certain things, you'd be even better at that. It's like, you probably get more of a return on your investment of spending time, like being better at this thing that you're already really good at. Yeah. than Trying to like take this things you're not good at and be like incrementally better, <laughs> which is a hard conversation to have. Cause you're like, but this one thing, it's like, I want to be better. Yeah. Um, so sometimes sure. where you invest your time really matters. Yeah. Like, do I want to be
2: mediocre at 10 things or do I want to be double awesome at one things?
3: Yeah, that's a tough one too. Cause I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've always <coughs> gravitated towards like, I want to learn all the things and, and yeah. learn a little bit of everything and you know, be, be passable at all of them, which I think is, I guess it's the, it's the generalist versus specialist debate. Yeah, And it's, it's tough to, yeah, tough to walk that line. I guess there there's also sort of the the maybe the maybe the middle ground is like being really good at like three things and then you know passable at a few other ones or something, but
2: kind of once yeah. you get really good at one thing, you can kind of branch out into the adjacent areas, yeah but I remember back like it was it was really, really difficult for me to like pick a lane and to choose to focus in and to choose to not do other things like back in two thousand six ish I remember it was like. I had three choices. I could either double down on Ruby because I was doing a bunch of Ruby on Rails stuff. I could double down on like ActionScript because that's so, it's like you could do so much cool stuff with Flash that you couldn't do in the web back then. And then or double down on JavaScript, even though JavaScript really, really sucked back then. I chose JavaScript because it felt like it was the, of the three options, it was the, the thing that had the biggest staying power. Of like, you can't choose not to use JavaScript. You can j- move from Ruby to Python to Java. Like, who cares what's happening on the server, right? Honestly. But on the client, you get one choice. Well, now we've got, you know, native whatever it's called. WebAssembly yeah, Web Web and yeah, so who knows, but yeah. But still, though, JavaScript.
3: We're in this golden age where we have like one choice.
2: <laughs> Is that golden? Man, I got to learn I'm-
3: I'm not sure. I, I kind of wonder about that, like, you know, five years from now or something, 10 years from now, looking back, like, will it will it still be JavaScript in the, on the front end? Or is it going to be just like an explosion of like, hey, you can write your front end in Ruby.
2: Oh, you're freaking people out, man. Quit it.
0: Here, <laughs> now we write re- websites in C. <laughs> Compiles down to web, assembly. <laughs> But look how fast our bills are. You might get a null pointer error. (laughs) That happens. No. Your site may
3: literally crash the browser, but hey, it's cool. (laughs) Segmentation
0: (laughs) faults are a thing. Now your images will load super lazily. (laughs) So lazily you'll never see them.
3: (laughs)
1: Great. I, sure. I, <laughs> I didn't even think
3: about picks. But uh, so recently I found a cool tool called Notion. Maybe people have already heard about this and been using it forever. But it's a, it's a nice uh, sort of a note-taking tool. Kind of It's sort of like Trello and Asana combined. It's like a project management sort of thing. But it also has sort of bits of Airtable, I suppose. Like it has this database model. And you can link uh, rows in the database and, and columns to like other... Parts of your Notion account, I suppose. It's pretty cool. Like you, you can just kind of take notes free for them and turn them into lists and turn them into to do lists and databases, and whatever. So if you've got, if, you, if you're doing any project management, um, it, it makes an awesome to do list, but it can, it can do way more than that. And yeah, Notion is
0: awesome. We use it at our site. We agree.
3: Yeah, cool. It's wonderful. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just getting on the bandwagon now then, but <laughs> <laughs> I like it so far. It's pretty cool.
0: They just need an what? API. Please, please. <laughs> You're yeah, listening that, to this, Google API. Cool. I've already requested it, but I'm like, how I went Google API.
3: The first the first result for Notion API was like some media article about like how I hacked together a notion API. I was like, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have any other picks. I, I did just get this uh this cool book called Understanding by Design. I'm been <clears throat> reading up on like how to teach things because that's kind of my main gig right now. It's been good so far. It's kind of geared towards like professional educators, like K through twelve and stuff. But um, there's a lot of stuff to be a lot of good ideas in there for how to how to impart knowledge and how to make sure people actually understand things. Awesome, Thomas.
0: You want to go next?
2: Yeah. So, um, so there's a team that uh, reached out to me recently on email and wanted to show off this thing that they were hacking together that has now become a real deal thing. It is a new time travel debugger. For React, uh, use reducer. So it's kind of the same kind of concept as the kind of time travel debugging stuff that you get in the, the Redux universe, brought over to just uh, the uh, React use reducer hooks. And they're planning cool. on adding more awesome stuff to it. It's still pretty new, but they've already implemented some really cool stuff. And I'm super, super jazzed about what all they're going to add to it. DevTools love it. And then, as far as like books, physical objects, I got um, the book *Displaced: Stories from the Syrian Diaspora* by uh, Madj Tabby and Sarah Cairns. I used to work with uh, Madj at Facebook back in 2012, and uh, he did a book. It's it's like um, they did back in when the kind of the, the Syrian refugee crisis was in its in in the news more seriously. They did a, a photo tour where they went through out and they interviewed a bunch of people and they wrote up all the stories and just like slice of life and like who are who are these people their their stories of like what's going on in their lives what they've been dealing with it's it's absolutely fascinating stuff and the photos are breathtaking.
0: That's awesome. Cool. So I'll wrap it up. Um, I was at Gemstack yesterday. It was uh, April 9th. That was a really awesome conference. Um, so Netlify introduced um, their Dev, so it's a way to use all of Netlify's services and infrastructure locally, which is like kind of mind-boggling. So Netlify offers things like like edge routing. Um, they offer like you know functions, lambdas. Basically, you can use all of their tools and infrastructure locally in the command line, and it's phenomenal. So cool. The demo was really awesome. So definitely check that out. There's also a state management library for React, if we needed another one of those. But this is kind of built on top of Redux, and it makes the ergonomics of Redux (laughs) much simpler. It's called Easy Peasy, um, and it truly is easy. It's it's wonderful. I've been using it on some side projects because... I've I've found lately that I just want less mental overhead for things. I just want it to be easier. I don't I don't care about going like stricken, like having everything you know all explicitly spelled out. It's just like I just want to be able to throw something together. This kind of gives me a good middle ground. So it still uses Redux. You can use the Redux Dev Tools. You can kind of you know do time traveling debugging and all that stuff. But at the same time, it's just less boilerplate and it's it's kind of nice. So if you're looking for an easy state management library. Check it out. Cool. I guess that's all for this week. Uh awesome. thanks for tuning in. Have a good one. Goodbye.
1: Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot to learn more.